Good morning. Let's open your Bibles up. We're continuing our work through the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll starting here this last chapter, the ending sections of the Sermon on the Mount. They're in Matthew chapter 7. We'll just be looking at these first six verses. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Jesus starts out this section of His Sermon on the Mount with these words, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercies and your goodness. Thank you for the gift of songs that point us to your amazing love and the joy that it brings to our hearts. Knowing that you pursued us even unto death of yourself. And what kind of amazing love loves us this much? Thank you, Father, that in your loving kindness towards us, you call us to live in a way that is not natural for us. And I pray as we look at these words that we would be receptive to the correction that they bring without taking on undue self-condemnation. I pray, Father, that that where we have these blind spots in our lives, that you would help us to see them, come to grips with them, and remove the logs in our eyes so that we may actually be able to help those around us with the specks in their eyes. And I pray, Father, that you would speak your word of truth through me this morning that not a word would come from my mouth that is not of your doing and origin. And we praise you and we thank you for what you have done and what you are doing and what you're going to do. In Jesus' holy name we ask it, Father. Amen. So, when we look at this passage, we have right off the bat, just in the first seven words, a frustrating thing. Judge not that you be not judged. Okay, that seems pretty plain, obviously, right? Don't judge. Don't make judgments. But then he tells us to make a judgment. In verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Well, that means I got to judge who's a dog and who's a pig. And then, just so that we're clear he's doing this, he goes later and then tells us, well, first off, you got the whole thing about false prophets and their fruit. So now I got to judge the actions and determine if those good actions or bad actions. And then he comes down here and tells us about false prophets and other things where we have to make judgments and determinations about a person or the people or a group. Well, which is it, Jesus? Are we to judge or not judge? 
Would you please tell me what I'm supposed to do here because you're confusing me? This is one of those frustrating moments where English struggles to capture what was said in another language. I'm firmly convinced at this point that the right way to say this is for us in modern world today would be do not be judgmental. Now, I thought that sounds kind of like I'm splitting hairs and playing games. But there actually is a significant difference between judging and judgmental. Even if you look up in Webster's Dictionary, which I did, judge means to ascertain and measure something that is right or something that is wrong, something that is true or something that is false, even to the aspect of making judgment about another person's character or actions. Judgmental, even by Webster's definition, is an overly critical spirit of judging or judging out of an overly critical spirit. Now, we all didn't really need Webster to help us understand that. We all kind of intuitively know the difference between making a right judgment and being judgmental. We know the difference between someone calling us out on our stuff and someone who's just overly critical about us. But we're grateful for Mr. Webster and his descendants helping us understand that and have a way to articulate it. And so when Jesus tells us, judge not that you be not judged, don't be judgmental. Don't be overly critical or else you'll be overly criticized yourself. And that immediately then raises the question, once we understand it that way, so is he talking about this is just a good practice, this is just a good practical way to interact with each other? Sort of. Yes, that is absolutely true. When we act this way, not being judgmental and overly critical, other people will also usually, most of the time, well, okay, some of the time, not be overly critical and judgmental at us. Treat people the way you want to be treated. But it doesn't just mean that. Jesus just isn't giving us some Jewish pragmatism in this moment. It's also included with the idea of how we interact with others is also this idea of God's judging us. If we're overly critical with those around us, then he's got every right to be overly critical with us for himself, which is kind of not right because he can't be overly critical. It's impossible for God to be overly critical. Yet, there's a difference. His mercy is at work. And that's probably the best way to comprehend this in the moment. If we aren't merciful with those around us who we think are messing up, then what reason does God have to be merciful with us when we mess up? Right? I mean, this whole section is about our blind spots. Right? And judgmental and being a judgmental person and overly critical in our spirits usually doesn't come from the things we know we're bad at. Like, I am never, well, almost never, almost never criticize someone singing because I'm really bad. 
I jokingly say, and I'm only half, I mean, it's not, it's not really a joke. I don't even have a full octave range in my voice when it comes to singing. I'm like middle C to D. That's it. Everything else is off. Below it and above it. And so because I know I'm bad at singing, I just, you know, I mean, you got to be really bad for me to say something negative about your singing. I mean, really, really bad. Like, un- like there's no way to say anything good about it. Bad. Same way with musical instruments. I don't really play musical instruments very well. I only have a couple that I've ever tried to play. So I don't really criticize other people's playing of musical instruments. Because I'm bad at it. But there was certainly a period of time when I had no problem telling every person that tried to stand up and teach or preach where their mistakes were. Because I at least believed I was good at it. I knew I was good at this and I'm going to help them. No, I had my motives had nothing to do with helping that person. My motives had to make sure they knew I was better. Pure and simple. They needed to know I was better than them, so I'm going to let them know that. That was my motive. Let's just be honest. I'm sure all of you have had that same problem, right? And if you haven't, just keep that to yourself. Okay? If you've never had that problem, I don't want to hear about it. Because I don't want to hear about you having all the good things in your life and I have all the stuff i got to deal with and fix in my life. I just don't want to hear that. And so... There seems to be the, the core problem of, of a critical spirit and being judgmental versus judging. Is for whatever reason, I feel the need to show you that I'm better than you. I know that I am the superior person in this area of life. Therefore, I will help you. No, I'm not trying to help you. I'm trying to make sure you know I'm better than you. And that's the exact spirit Jesus is working against. I mean, I mean, what did he say in chapter 5 at the very... How did he start out this whole sermon? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The judgmental spirit here at the beginning of chapter 7 is the exact opposite of being merciful. So these passages are not as disjointed and disconnected as they first appear. They actually fit together. Chapter 7 is a working out, a practical way of living out the commands in the Beatitudes. That's what Jesus is doing here. And he's going to be hitting the Pharisees pretty hard in the future chapters of the book of Matthew. And if he's going to be hitting the Pharisees about their hypocrisy, He first wants his disciples to get rid of theirs. And that really hasn't changed today. Before the Lord wants us to confront the outside world about its hypocrisy, he wants us to get rid of ours first. I mean, he even uses this illustration about a log in our eye when somebody else has a speck in their eye. And at first it kind of seems confusing because usually, like I said, we're judgmental about the things we're good at. But it's not about 
the thing, it's about the attitude of the heart. That's what he's really hammering at. And the reason I know that is because every time you talk about this subject of hypocrisy or uh, you know, being overly critical, it's all, it's, it's, it's always an attitude of the heart that's really where this is coming from, more so than the thing it's about. I mean, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 2? Talking about the subject of judging. Talking about the subject of, I love the way that Martin Lloyd Jones commented on this passage, talking about the difference between being judgmental or overcritical and discriminating. Right? That's what verse 6 is talking about. Being discriminating about the people and their attitudes and behaviors. But in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1, what does Paul say about this subject of being judgmental? Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If I'm judgmental and overly critical, I have a hard heart. And, and, and God's whole purpose in showing me that is, is, is to bring me to this place of a penitent repentance. Right? Penitent is a word we don't really do very well here in our modern culture. Right? The penitent is just, it's, let's just call it a humbleness. We're humble enough to admit we were wrong. Ugh. Really? I have to admit I was wrong? <sighs> yes, we have to admit we were wrong. We have to admit it to God. And what does scripture say? Then we have to admit it to the person we were wrong against. So when I'm overly critical to somebody, I then have to admit it to them and ask for forgiveness. That is just not normal. And it's what Jesus wants. He wants us to not be normal. Right? Here's the weird thing. Normal in the, in, in God's eyes is really weird in everybody else's. Right? When we're normal in God's eyes, we're not acting normal to the rest of the world. We're acting very weird. You admit you were wrong. Have you ever noticed how some people don't even know what to do with that? If you admit you were wrong about something, they don't even know what to do. They have no way, they have no category for responding to that because they've never experienced it before. They've never experienced someone actually admitting they were wrong. That's how weird it is. And yet this is what God calls us to. But he calls us to it not because he want to call us out on the carpet, but because he wants to lift us up off the carpet. He wants to take us from the place where we feel this need in our hearts to be overly critical towards others to this place where we can live without the self-condemnation and without condemning others. 
We can do that while at the same time speaking the truth about holiness, about his standard of righteous living and what he expects from all of us. I don't know about you, but that's just really hard for me. It's just really hard for me to to not be judgmental, to not be condemning, and at the same time speak honestly about God's standards and his holiness. I seem to be able to do one really good, but not the other at the same time. But that's where he wants us to go. That's where he's driving us to. It's where he's driving his I shouldn't use the word driving. It's where he's leading his disciples to here on this hillside against the Sea of Galilee that day 2,000 years ago. And it's where he's leading this body of believers on this hillside in Castle Rock. Sometimes amazes me the parallels between this Sermon on the Mount and this physical church that exists here today. We're on a hillside. He's on a hillside talking to his disciples. And, and, and it's important. I, you know, look, I'm not going to, I don't, I am not going to drift off into some humanistic psychobabble here. But nonetheless, we have to come to grips with the reality and address and question biblically the, the, the prominence in our culture of self-condemnation. You think, well, that's just weird. Well, you don't. Have you ever noticed that the people who are the most verbally acidic about a subject or an issue are also the ones who feel the most guilty about it? And, and it's not just that God wants us to take away the critical spirit that we have towards others. I think he also wants us to take away the critical spirit that we have towards ourselves. If you don't believe that God loves you, it's very hard for you to convince someone else that God loves them, loves them. If you don't believe God loves you, how can you show someone that God loves them? I mean, look at what he has done for us. Look. I talked about reading from Romans chapter 2 there about Paul addressing the subject of an overly critical spirit and being judgmental. But then Paul talks about the thing we've all heard so many times that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins and it was show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier for the one who has faith in Jesus. God loves us so much. He loves you so much that he is both your just judge and your justifier out of his great love for you and me. He is your justifier, whom Jesus was the propitiation and the redemption of our sins and of our overly critical spirits. That too. Jesus even justifies us from that. The thing he tells us not to do in chapter 7 and then we do it anyway, he's our justifier and our propitiation for that as well. Then he tells us 
that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And goes on to talk about his own struggle with the fight in the flesh versus his living in the spirit. And I used to, there's some people who think that chapter 7 of the book of Romans is Paul talking about his life before he came to faith in Christ. And then chapter 8 is his, him living afterwards, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And for a while, I thought that too. But now I've lived long enough that I'm convinced that is not true. That Paul is describing in chapter 7 and chapter 8 the kind of experience that each of us have on a regular basis. I mean, yesterday, I was having a great time with the Lord and I was really spiritual. I mean, I was, yes. I told some of you early this morning about some of the things that was happening yesterday with me and God. And it only took about an hour until I was driving down the road and I'm already condemning all this person and that person and why, and if they had not done this, my life wouldn't be so difficult at this moment. I didn't even make it an hour. So yeah, Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 are about the same guy living through the same struggles in every day. And if I'm wrong about that, okay, then I'll just be wrong about it because understanding it that way is the way things really happen for this guy. And I guess it does for you too. But then, in his mercy and his goodness, he tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for the for the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing His riches on all who call on Him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. My brothers and sisters, if we don't believe that about ourselves... We'll never be able to speak it with hope to those around us. And so I I know this is kind of a stretch and I just acknowledge it right up front. If we don't believe that Jesus loves us enough to die for us and shed his blood to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, even our hypocrisy and overly critical spirits, then we still got the log stuck in our eye. Yes, yes, we need to go the next step and do the things he's actually talking about here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. But that step has to be preceded by truly believing that he loves us enough to save us, to shed his infinite precious blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everything we just sang about. I firmly believe that a church has to sing what it believes as well as teach what it believes. And when we sang this morning, we sang what we believe as a church. And my hope is that you sang what you believe for yourself. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Behold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, 
How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Do you believe that about you? There was a long time I didn't believe that about me. I would read Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I'd read that and I'd go, well, that's true for everybody, but not for me. I am still under condemnation because I really messed up. And I got to fix, you know, I got to, my mess ups were so bad that this doesn't apply to me anymore. I got to make this right. Eight, one and two, nah, that's for everybody else, not for me. But God in His mercy and grace showed me that's not true. That His love for me was not based on my performance. I really believed. All the while teaching the gospel of grace, I thought, well, that's true for everybody but me. I'm the gospel of works because I'm so bad. And then one day in his loving kindness, he showed me that that's not true. That despite my worst days and my worst mistakes, his love for me was based on his love for me, period. And that I was cleansed and justified And there is no condemnation for me either. Not based on works, but based on his genuine love for me. And that's my plea to you, my brothers and sisters, for this day. Despite the log in your eye that you feel is there and needs to be removed, do not feel the self-condemnation but instead feel the love of our Father who wishes to remove it so you may enjoy, enjoy His love for you. And that's where I'm going to leave you today. Enjoy, enjoy His love for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your great loving kindness that never, ever stops loving us, even on our worst days and our worst mistakes, no matter how bad they are. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus to cleanse us of all our sins and to wash us whiter than snow. Thank you, Father. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for not leaving us in the quagmires of our sin and their consequences, but lifting us up off the floor so that we may live as children of the living God. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would cement this reality and this truth in our hearts and we would live like children of the King. In Jesus' name, amen.